The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. We have the privilege now to continue in our worship as we study God's Word together, so I'd invite you, if you have a Bible, actually open up to 2 Corinthians. We'll go to the book of Acts, chapter 22, after I read a few passages in 2 Corinthians. So we've been going through the book of Acts, started at chapter 1, now we're actually going to be in chapter 23 before we're done this morning, covering early church history. We've covered a lot of material up to this point, the first 20 plus years of how the church began, and the last several months really going into detail on the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, three missionary journeys. And as we get through a majority of the book of Acts, If you go back to Paul's epistles now, those 13 epistles, you can understand them or read them in a a new way, in a fully informed way, maybe like never before. And so that's a tremendous blessing uh, once you understand the book of Acts and the chronology of of Paul's ministry and all that transpired, and then you can go back and put these 13 epistles in context. Very helpful, like knowing the occasion why Paul wrote Galatians and how that corresponds with Acts chapter 15, his first missionary journey, the Jerusalem Council, it all makes sense. Um, How third missionary journey, he's writing to the Romans just before he departs. Uh, How he writes his first uh, letter to the Corinthians from Ephesus during that three-year period, having been there and established that church and been gone a couple years and here's through the grapevine of problems they're having. So it's very informative and helpful. to go through Acts, to know it well, and then to go back to Paul's epistles. And I wanted to do that before I go to Acts 22. And actually, 2 Corinthians. Look at 2 Corinthians with me, if you will. Starting at chapter 4, where we left off last week, the apostle Paul was at the temple making a sacrifice. He was falsely accused by Jews from Asia who knew him, who hated him, who wanted nothing to do with his Jesus. So they conjured up false accusations against Paul. Started screaming in the temple where there were thousands of Jews because it was Pentecost season. It's festival time. The place is packed. It's broad day. And they start screaming at the top of their lungs saying that Paul's defiled the temple and he's a blasphemer. And then the crowd turns on him. They drag him out of the inner court, drag him out to the outer court where the court of the Gentiles is and just begin pummeling him almost to the point of death, beating him literally kicking him, punching him, whatever else they were doing to him until he was a bloody pulp. And then the Roman soldiers came down, intervened, pulled him out, trying to figure out what's all this commotion, what's going on, who is this guy, why are you trying to kill him, what did you do, what did you stir up, what kind of terrorist are you, troublemaker. And then the Roman soldiers, they couldn't get any answers, so they pulled Paul away and they're going to take him to the Roman barracks, which is adjacent to the temple, the Roman commander. And before... As they get up the stairs away from the mob, Paul turns around and says, can I speak to the crowd? And the Roman soldier let Paul speak to the Jewish mob shouting for his blood. And Paul addressed them in Aramaic, which was their native language as Jews. It was the language of the Hebrews. The Roman commander probably didn't know Aramaic. So Paul gives this talk or this speech, testimony really, and the Roman commander, he didn't understand any of it. And it was going all right for a while. And then Paul gets to that 
culmination, giving his personal testimony of how he used to, as a zealous Jew, attack the church of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Nazarene, and he persecuted Christians and imprisoned them and approved of their death. And then he was confronted by a voice from heaven, the Lord himself, and it was Jesus who confronted Paul, made him go blind, then Paul got saved, became a Christian, and then the Lord Jesus from heaven gave Paul a new commission, stop persecuting my church, but rather be a servant of my church. You will go on my behalf. You will be an ambassador. Actually, he was an apostle. And I will actually send you to the ends of the earth, and I will send you primarily to the Gentiles with the gospel, the gracious gospel of God. And so as Paul's given his testimony, the Jews, they're listening attentively because he's speaking in Aramaic. He used to be a zealous Jew. He used to be a Pharisee. He used to persecute Christians, has their full attention. And then at the very end, he says, and Jesus saved me, commissioned me to go to the Gentiles that they might be saved. And then they just erupted and blew up when he said that he was going to go to the Gentiles. So that's where we left off. This mob, that was the context, who had just finished beating him almost to the death. And we've seen this in Paul's missionary journeys, his three missionary journeys over the course of 15-plus years. It seems like everywhere Paul went, he starts preaching the gospel and he's getting resistance and persecution. First, verbal resistance, and many times it turned physical. People are chasing him out of town. Sometimes uh, they arrest him, many times with no trial whatsoever, throw him in prison. We saw in Philippi he was arrested, thrown in prison, beat up, beaten with rods like broomsticks to a bloody pulp, no trial. Then he's released. He goes to the next city. We saw also earlier before that where he was uh, stoned almost to the point of death. They thought he was dead and just left him lying there, thought he was dead. So this was Paul's ministry. Became a seemed like accustomed to it. That's what he expected. Uh, so look at Second Corinthians where he testifies of this, that this, this has been the nature of his ministry. How's your ministry going? Oh, how's, your, uh, how's the attendance at your church? How's the offering? How's the giving? So if you were to ask Paul, hey, how, how's the ministry going? How's it going, Pastor Apostle Paul? Well, here's what he said. Second uh, Corinthians 4. He says, we have this measure in earthen vessels... I, I'm a frail human being. I am a clay pot. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Anything good that happens in my ministry is of God and not me because I am so weak and I'm under duress all the time. Verse 8, we, are, we the apostles, Paul, Luke, Barnabas, whoever his partner was, Silas, we are afflicted in every way. Everywhere I go, afflicted. Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always, verse 10, carrying about in the, in the body, in our physical bodies, the dying of Jesus, always suffering just as Jesus suffered. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Then he goes on. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, well, what do you do as a servant of God, Paul? Well, here's what's typical. In much endurance, it's hard. You've got to endure. Ministry's not easy. Being an apostle's not easy. It's typified by in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses. That includes emotional duress. 
He was human just like us. Finite, fallen, just like us. Verse 5, in beatings, plural, imprisonments, plural, in tumults, that's where he gets the mob crowd goes crazy and tries to kill him. That happened several times. In labors, in sleeplessness, this typified his ministry. In hunger, keep going, uh, chapter 11. Uh, verse 21. Actually, started verse uh, 22. He's just talking about himself as an apostle and what he has endured as uh, a servant, an apostle, a leader, a pastor on behalf of the churches. People were criticizing him, saying he's a false teacher, he's a false apostle. And the Corinthians were believing it. And so Paul's reminding them of his reputation and all that he's done. For them and for the sake of Christ, verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number. He can't even remember how many times he got beat up. Often in danger of death. That's just what happened in Acts where he was beat almost to death in public in the court of the Gentiles. Five times I received... From the Jews, 39 lashes. He was whipped formally. We haven't seen that happen in the book of Acts, but it happened at least five times. Where Jews in whatever city tried to shut him down, arrest him, and they whipped him 39 times. That happened five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. We saw the one in Philippians. That happened two more times. Once I was stoned, we saw that in the book of Acts, almost to death. Three times I was shipwrecked. We're going to read one in Acts here. A night and a day I have spent in the deep, whatever that is. The deep could be a, a pit. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers. We don't even read about that. In Acts, we just read how he went to this city and this city, and Luke's uh, chronicle, chronicling all of that. He went to this city. But what's going on in between is they're being marauded by robbers and, and he gives us a little detail. Dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, the Jews, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among the false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger, thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all this, verse 28, these are the physical trials. Verse 28 is the, the trial, the nature of the ministry of being a pastor, a shepherd, a faithful elder. He loved people. He loved people. He loved the sheep. He loved the saints wherever he went. So that's why verse 28 says, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. And that's where Paul would lose sleep. He, he thinks about a congregation he loves. Man, I, I, I pastored for a year and a half in Corinth. I founded that church. I, those beloved saints, those people are so dear to me. And he's in Ephesus thinking about, wow, now they're being deceived by false teachers. And they're buying into it. And in Galatia. And he's losing sleep. That's the nature of the ministry for a faithful pastor. Because the people are on your heart. The people are on your mind. You love them. You're not in it for yourself. You're not in it for the money and prestige and whatever. That was Paul. His heart would break for his people. 
And as a result, verse 29, he is weak. Well, the main point in the Second Corinthians, go back to chapter 7. In light of all these pressures, in light of all these trials, in light of all these difficulties in life, if you're a Christian, here's where you can hang your hope. Chapter 7, verse 6. God who comforts the depressed. God who comforts the depressed comforted us. God is faithful. We continue to lean on Him. He comforts us. He's the only reason we can take another step, live another day, press forward. How encouraging. If you're a Christian, you can say the same thing. You know God personally. You know Him through Jesus Christ. No matter what's going on in your life, distressed, depressed, whatever kind of trial has come your way, God is the one who comforts because you are in the family of God. Let's go to now Acts chapter 22 where we see more evidence of the Apostle Paul under duress, under persecution, constantly, yet God is faithful through it all. God is faithful through it all to Paul, sustaining him, providing for him. Another thing to look at is Paul's amazing attitude throughout all this persecution, rejection. We already saw it. It was exemplary when people kept telling him, man, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to die. If you're going to go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested. Uh, You'll be subjected to persecution, physical harm. And Paul's, I belong to Jesus. That's okay. I am ready to die for Christ. So that's an exemplary attitude for us to follow or be encouraged by. And so now he's in the thick of it. Uh, So let's go to Acts chapter... We'll just pick up where we left off last week. We'll pick up in Acts chapter 22, starting at verse 23. And we're going to go to Acts 23 all the way to verse 10. The title of the sermon today, I put, No Justice for Paul. There was a movie called And Justice for All. This is No Justice for Paul. It, It rhymes. No Justice for Paul. From a human point of view, there's no justice... If you catalog it very quickly over the course of chapter 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, six times, six times Paul is going to give his defense, his apologia, his apologetic. And it amounts to a testimony. Six times. We've seen one already. He gave his apologia, his apologetic, his personal testimony to a hostile crowd. That was the first time. There's going to be five more. We're going to see the second one right here before the Sanhedrin. Then after the Sanhedrin, there's four more different audiences. Some of these are formal, some are informal. Most of them are ad hoc and spontaneous. Some are of a legal nature. Paul doesn't change throughout any of the six. He just entrusts his life to God, leading him step by step, giving his testimony, always staying focused, emphasizing that he knows Jesus Christ personally. He is a servant of Christ. He's a servant of the gospel. He used to be this way. God changed him and made him a new creature. And he wants everybody to hear that wonderful message. No justice for Paul. Let's go ahead and look at it. Picking up at verse 23. uh, Actually, just to catch us up to speed, we'll go to verse 22, where Paul's on the stairs speaking to the Jewish mob. The Roman commander standing by listening. He's speaking in an Aramaic. He gave his personal testimony. He used to be a zealous Jew. Now Jesus saved him. Now he's been commissioned to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Verse 21. And he, Jesus, said to me, Go, 
for I will send you an apostle far away to the Gentiles. Okay, that was the word that they couldn't handle, Gentiles, these Jews. Now, it was, Jews were, could be, Gentiles could become a part of the Jewish community. In the Old Testament, God allowed that through the Mosaic law. You could convert to Judaism if you were a Gentile. But there's only one way to do it. You had to go through the front door of the Mosaic law to become a Jew if you were a Gentile. It had to be through the Mosaic law. So that was possible. Circumcision. Sacrifices. Mosaic law. Temple obedience. But Paul, the change here, the Apostle Paul was now telling Gentiles, you don't have to go through the front door of Judaism to know God. You don't have to get circumcised to know God anymore. All you have to do is believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Yahweh God came down, took on a human body as the God-man lived a perfect life, totally sinless, came to die, did that very thing, died on the cross as a sacrifice, as a substitute for sinners, as the Lamb of God. God the Father punished Jesus while He was on the cross in fulfillment of Old Testament Scriptures, died, was buried, rose again from the dead, ascended back into heaven. And now the message was you can know God the Creator and Judge of the universe not by becoming a Jew first through the Mosaic Law, but by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ by grace through faith. That was scandalous to the Jews of Paul's day. What do you mean? You don't have to become a Jew. So the unbelie- that's why they despised Paul and his message. That's why they concluded in their mind, so you hate the Mosaic Law. So you don't like the Old Testament. That's what even today Christians are accused of by unbelievers and sometimes critical unbelieving Jews. They say, oh, you only believe in half of the Bible. You only believe in the New Testament. You don't believe in the Old Testament. I've heard that criticism a lot. No, we do. We do believe in the New Testament, but we do believe that it is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And yes, there are many shadows in the Old Testament. The substance is now Christ. So the unbelievers didn't understand that. So they just assume Paul despised Moses now didn't uh, believe in the temple or the sacrifices anymore, despised circumcision. And so that was a false accusation. But he had something greater. It was the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He actually, Ironically, he was the fulfilled Jew. He was more Jewish than they were because they're still living in the shadows. They've rejected the greatest promise of the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law, which was the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. He was the purpose of the Old Testament. That's the irony. And they rejected Christ. So he says, Jesus called me to go far away to the Gentiles. Verse 22. And then they listened to him up to that point, And then they raised their voices and they began screaming away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Death to this Paul. So the crowd just goes crazy. So that takes us to point one. The mob responds in violence. No justice for Paul. He tries to get a hearing, pleads his case, gives nothing but the facts, talks about how God changed him, gave him a commission from the Lord himself from heaven, Yahweh God, Jesus is their Messiah. They want none of it. The mob responds in violence, verses 22 to 23. 
away with him. Verse 23, and then they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust in the air. Literally, actually, they were waving their clothes in the air. Like they took off their outer robe and they're waving it. Just this mass mob doing that. And they're throwing dirt in the air. And that was an expression of their day. There were different ways to express outwardly either your grief. Many times if you grieved, you would literally beat your breast and rock and cry and wail and weep at the top of your, your voice. Uh, or you would rip your garments. You would rend your, and tear your garments as a way of showing grief or sadness. To show anger back in the area where Paul lives, even today, if you're angry, you throw rocks. Apparently, there in the outer court of the temple, there were no rocks. <laughs> so they're grabbing whatever they can find. It's just dirt and soil. And they're throwing it and they're throwing it in the air. Probably throwing it at Paul, all in unison. This is, this is a violent reaction. So he's not getting justice after hearing his testimony. Imagine this massive crowd in the courtyard, probably hundreds and hundreds of people just like sardines in that massive Gentile court outside the temple proper. And they're screaming at him as he's on the stairs and they're throwing dirt at him and they're waving their garments all in unison. Hundreds of people. And imagine sprinkled throughout our faithful Christians there, mixed in. It could be Luke is in this crowd, watching. And the, the nine or so, ten believers that Paul traveled with, there. But what could they do? I mean, they're being outnumbered by hundreds and hundreds of people. Probably a very frightening, overwhelming experience for the believers that were sprinkled throughout. So the mob responds in violence. Well, let's go to the next point, point number two. So then the Roman commander, he was the Chiliarch. He was the one, Chiliarch, a thousand. He was in charge of at least a thousand troops, which included two, at least two centurions who were in charge of a hundred troops. This Chiliarch is later named Claudius Lysias. We're going to see that's his name. Up to this point, he's been called the captain, the commander, the Chiliarch. So he's the authority in charge on behalf of the Roman government here to squelch mob violence. That's kind of his job, to keep order, to keep peace on behalf of Rome. Where he lives there in Fort Antonio, we talked about that, was literally in a building adjacent to the temple. And Fort Antonio was a military fortress, and it was tall, and it was from either the rooftop or somewhere up there where the commander actually saw the violence erupt and so quickly went down along with about 200 Roman soldiers to try to squelch this, this crowd to the best of his ability. They were very violent. It was hard to do. So the, the mob is going crazy again. He's, got, he's down there with hundreds of soldiers, and they just can't do anything with this crowd. They're so violent. There's so many of them. So he intervenes. Number two, the, Roman, the Romans operate in ignorance trying to take charge and preserve order. Verse 24, the commander, the Chiliarch, ordered Paul, when the, the crowd erupted, to be brought into the barracks again. That's what he tried to do the first time when Paul said, let me stop and talk. So he's like, okay, I'm, let's get this guy out of here. This crowd's crazy. Ordered that Paul be taken into the Roman barracks in Fort Antonia, away from the mob stating that he should be examined by scourging. So that's what the Roman commander wants to do. He's already determined Paul's guilty. 
And he's going to be interrogated by scourging so that he might, the commander might find out the reason why they were shouting against Paul this way. So the commander still hasn't figured it out. When he first got there, he inquired and asked everybody, okay, what's going on? Who's at fault? Who is this guy? And he couldn't get any answers because there was so much confusion in the crowd. So then Paul, Paul talks in Aramaic. The commander doesn't understand any of it. And then the crowd just explodes again. And the commander's like, what is going on? So to finally figure out what's going on, he thinks, okay, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I don't know who this guy is, why he's here, and why just by speaking he makes everybody so angry all at once. I'm going to interrogate him, and I'm going to get answers out of him through brute force. And I'm going to have him whipped through scourging. The word scourging is a very specific word. Probably the flagellum it was called. And that was a very specific way that Romans would torture people by whipping. This is different than the, than the Jewish 39 lashes. This is more brutal and severe than the 39 lashes. By the way, the Romans didn't stop at 39. Many times they just keep going until you were dead. There was no limit. So that Mel Gibson movie was probably pretty accurate as they beat Jesus almost to the point of death with the flagellum. So he's, you know what? I'm going to get to the bottom. I'm going to, we're going to beat this guy with the flagellum. We're going to get answers out of him. And the flagellum was, it had leather straps, a short piece of wood that it was tied to. And then at the end of the straps, there were bones and glass and sharp pieces of metal on the bottom of the leather strips so that when you lashed, literally cling to the skin and many times just start ripping skin from the body and, and hooking into the side and the back until eventually getting to the inner organs and just, just ripping a human being, shredding them. to the, That's why many died from the scourging, from the flagellum, and if they didn't die, they would be crippled for life. This was typical, and that's what he wanted to do. There's no trial so he just orders it. Okay, we're going we're gonna to scourge this guy. So he's telling his Roman soldiers, get him ready. Strip off his clothes, bare his back, spread him out, tie him to the post, make his back taut. And so that's exactly what they do. Verse 25. So they're following orders. Aye, sir. And they, they strip Paul down. They spread him out. They tie him down. And they're ready to begin whipping him with the flagellum without a trial. So when they stretched Paul out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion, the Roman soldier there, who's standing by, who just tied him up to be, Paul says, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Paul's talking about himself. I am a Roman citizen. Is it lawful for you to whip me with the flagellum, especially when I haven't even had a trial and I'm not guilty? And then the, the Roman centurion went into an immediate panic because... The Roman law was clear. If you were a Roman citizen, you were never to be subjected to the flagellum, even if you were guilty. And Paul was a Roman citizen. If you were a Roman citizen also, you were, you were allowed a fair trial. Paul had no trial. And this Roman centurion and this Roman chiliarch, if they had subjected Paul to the flagellum, all those Roman soldiers would have been guilty of a capital crime. Not only would he lose his job, he'd probably lose his life, the Chiliarch. 
for arresting Paul, a Roman citizen, no trial towards a Roman citizen, and then beating him with the flagellum as a Roman citizen. All violated the law. So when Paul says, wait, are you sure it's okay to be whipping me, a Roman citizen? And so this Roman soldier goes into a panic immediately. Yikes. And so verse 26, the centurion heard this. He immediately, he went to the commander, the Chiliarch, and told him, saying, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. And then the commander, panic, verse 27, the commander came and said to Paul, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. Verse 28. Now, there's no reason for the commander not to take Paul at his word because if you lied about your citizenship under Roman law, and they found out about it, you would receive the death penalty immediately. So that, that wasn't typical that you would do that. So he takes Paul at his face value. Verse 28, the commander answered, I acquired my citizenship with a large sum of money. My family paid a lot of money for our citizenship. So the, the Roman Chiliarch, the, the authority in charge there on behalf of Rome, wasn't even born a Roman citizen. At some point, his family had to purchase or he himself purchased citizenship which is kind of a second-class citizen but you still have all rights and privileges of a citizen and it could have been so right now it's about 57 a.d and paul's this is under the rome of nero wicked nero the roman emperor but a few years prior to that 54 a.d and before was claudius and for a short period of time during the reign of claudius the roman emperor he allowed you to purchase, pay big bucks for citizenship. It was a way to make money and put it in the coffers. Could be that's when this Chiliarch earned his citizenship, maybe three or four years previous. But he, he paid money for his citizenship. So he's just telling Paul, hey, I'm a citizen and I paid big bucks for mine. Verse 28, and Paul retorts and says, but I was actually born a citizen. I didn't have to buy mine. That was impressive. Verse 29, Therefore, those who were about to examine Paul, scourge him, immediately let go of him. So they, they unleashed him. Untie him immediately. Stop. That's what they did. And the commander also was afraid. There it is. He's just overcome with fear, this Chiliarch, when he found out that Paul was a Roman because he had put him in chains. That could have cost him his job and his life. Whew! Big relief. And then verse 30. But on the next day. So they release Paul. They probably take him into the back into the barracks, put him in a room. He's under custody. He's being preserved. He's away from the crowd. He's probably not in those chains that they initially put him in that we saw earlier. Immediately when they first saw him, they put him in, it said two chains. That was also illegal because he was a Roman citizen and he had no trial. That was earlier on in Acts chapter 22. Now the chains are probably off, but he is confined. Verse 30, the commander still doesn't know who this Paul guy is and why he's making everybody so angry and why this mob rose up so violently, but he wants answers. So that's why he does what he does in verse 30. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews... He needed to know. He needed an answer. He needed a formal, verifiable answer. Why? Because he represented Rome. 
And if anybody in Rome and the hierarchy and the authority heard about an uprising and mobs springing up, they would inquire, what's going on? Who is guilty? Who's the guilty party? Because it was on the head of the Roman chiliarch. He was responsible. He needed to know who the perpetrator was, what they did wrong, so he could squelch it, shut it down. That's what he's after here. And you can't send Paul on without a specific crime. Guilt, especially now that he's, he's a Roman citizen. If I'm going to arrest him and put him in custody and punish him, I need a crime that violates Roman law. Uh, verse 30. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released Paul and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. So he's going to set them before the Sanhedrin. Okay, I can't get any answers. So maybe since he said he's Jewish, he used to be a Pharisee, part of the Sanhedrin, then I'll ask them to examine him. Maybe they can give me an answer of what's going on because everybody that was mad at him, they were all Jews. So it's got to be a Jewish thing. The Sanhedrin of all people, they could figure this out. The Sanhedrin, by the way, the council in verse 30 in your New American Standard Bible, Sanhedrin is actually the word for council. That was the Supreme Court of Israel, the Sanhedrin. In Paul's day, it was probably composed of 71 members, 70 regular members, and then one of the members was actually the high priest who was kind of the uh, Supreme Court chief justice. The Supreme Court of Jerusalem, of the Jews. They met in Jerusalem. They actually had kind of their their court next to the temple on the hill, but in a formal setting, like a courtroom. And so that's the Roman commander's idea. By the way, the Romans many times were in cahoots with the leadership of Judaism. And they would do favors for each other. And so this commander feels like he has the authority to call the Sanhedrin into order to convene. This was spontaneous. This was last minute. This was ad hoc. This was a big deal. This was not normal. This was out of the ordinary. To get 71 guys together for a formal meeting, that was a big deal. But this Roman soldier had the authority to do that, and they complied. They were willing to do it. They were going to formally assemble, and then he brought Paul down the next day to put him on trial before the Sanhedrin. That's exactly what he's doing. So let's go to point number three. So he hasn't received any justice from the Jewish mob that was violent, that they just wanted his death. He hasn't received any justice from Rome, who's supposed to be the highest power in the land. And now we're going to see, does he get any justice before another formal hearing of the Jews, their highest court in the land? That's verses 1 through 10, the Sanhedrin. A little more about the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was composed, it was a mixed group of Jews. The high priest typically was a Sadducee. So that's the case here. Ananias is his name. This is a different Ananias. When Paul got saved in Acts chapter 9, you read about a guy named Ananias, totally different guy. And that Ananias is also another different guy than the Ananias in Acts chapter 5 who died for lying. So Ananias was kind of a common name. But this high priest is Ananias, uh, a relatively new high priest. Paul hasn't been around in Jerusalem in over 20 years. Paul probably at one time early on was a member of the Sanhedrin when he hated Christians, but that was 20, 30 years ago. So back then, he knew the high priest, the high priest's family, all the who's who of the Sanhedrin, 
all the power brokers. Now he's totally out of touch with the membership for the most part. Probably a lot of new blood there, including the high priest. Also in this meeting, because it was ad hoc, last minute, spontaneous, when they did convene, many times the high priest would actually have formal garb. You know how our Supreme Court has their black robes and various markings? Well, it could be they didn't have, they weren't dressed in their typical formal garb. So it was just 71 Jews meeting in this setting. So there is a lot of ignorance on Paul's part in terms of who is making up this body of the Sanhedrin. It's important to remember, this will be the fifth time in the book of Acts, or no, in the Bible, in the New Testament, the fifth time that the formal Sanhedrin will be examining and investigating Christianity. It was the Sanhedrin in the Gospels, John 19 and the other Gospels, that examined Jesus Christ and condemned him to death and sent him to the Jews. And they had two high priests who were wicked, evil, supposed to be representing true Judaism. They were corrupt at the core. They mistreated Jesus. They had him beaten in the Sanhedrin. They had him punched in the mouth. And they were examining Christ and his religion and his teaching. And they, they concluded he was guilty. He deserved death. So that was the first time the Sanhedrin investigated. And then the Sanhedrin also, once the church started, had formal meetings where they examined uh, Peter and John and determined they were guilty. Shut up. You're, and then they imprisoned them and said, don't teach anymore. Don't talk about Jesus. But they did. Then they arrested all 12 apostles, the Sanhedrin. Then the Sanhedrin arrested this guy named Stephen. Remember Stephen was a converted Jew, got saved. And then he was before the Sanhedrin. And they're in trial. Stephen gives his testimony. And before his testimony is even over, they just ran at him, dragged him out of the city and killed him on the spot. This is the Sanhedrin. So now it's almost... 15, 17 years later, and the Sanhedrin is meeting once again for the fifth time to investigate, examine Jesus Christ, his religion, his followers, this time the Apostle Paul. So let's look at verses 1 through 10. The Sanhedrin functions with insolence, a lack of justice. Starting at verse 1. So... Paul is put before the Sanhedrin, their formal council. Sometimes they met in a semicircle, the high priest right in the middle. Oh, by the way, the Sanhedrin, I was saying, was made up of different people. So you've got, it's made up of the Sadducees. They were probably the dominant body, the Sadducees, rulers of the Jews who believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. They did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in angels. Wait, let me say that again. They did not believe in the resurrection of anybody. They did not believe in angels. Now, remember what happened to Jesus when he died the third day? He rose again from the dead. Two angels from heaven appeared to Jesus. Two. Truth must be validated with the testimony of two or three witnesses in the mind of a Jew according to the Mosaic law. Rose from the dead. Two angels who witnessed the resurrection of Christ. Here, the Sadducees don't even believe in resurrection or angels. You couldn't tell them, well, Jesus rose from the dead. No, he didn't prove it. Well, two angels were there to validate it. We don't believe in angels. Nor do they believe in spirits. So when Paul was given his testimony, I had a vision and there was a light from heaven that appeared to me. They're like, well, we don't believe in visions or lights from heaven. So this was a difficult bunch to convince the Sadducees. That's who Ananias was. 
He was a Sadducee. And then it was also had a mingling of Pharisees. Uh, they believed in the resurrection. As a matter of fact, that was, they tenaciously believed in the resurrection. That was the hope of the future. They, they knew it was in the Bible. It was in Daniel chapter 12. It was in Psalm 16. Genesis 22, many other places. The resurrect, the book of Job. It's in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in angels. They believed in visions. They believed God spoke in theophanies and direct revelation and in dreams. So they butted heads with the Sadducees. And then there were scribes there. They were the masters of the law, the Mosaic law. They had it memorized. And then there were some elders in there as well, Jewish elders. So this is a a mixed group of Jewish leadership. They don't all like each other. But you get along when your enemy is the friend of my enemy is the friend of my, or anyway, my enemy hates my enemy is my friend or whatever, how that goes. So here's the meeting. So Paul is put before them, thrust before them. Paul looking intently at the council. There it is. This just speaks of the courage of Paul. The courage, the trust, K God, I'm going before the Sanhedrin. I I trust you. I'm going to hold on the promise of Jesus who said, when you go before the courts of the Jews, don't worry about what you will say. I will speak through you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that to his other apostles, Luke 12, 12. So here's Paul walking by faith, not by sight. God, speak through me. Be my strength in my weakness. So he is looking intently, courageously, confidently. That's what that means. Looking at every one of them. He's not afraid of them. I represent the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for me. He rose again from the dead. Who are you? I live for him. I will die for him. That was Paul's attitude. He could look intently at the highest authority in the land of the Jews and speak with authority. And he does. Listen to the way he starts his testimony. Brethren, that's a sign of respect. Fellow Jews, I I recognize this body of Jews as an authority ordained of God. Brethren, kindred heritage that we have as Jews. Brethren, I'm not a stranger to you. I'm not a Gentile. Brethren, I used to be in the Sanhedrin. Brethren, I was one of you at one time. Brethren, Some of you may even know me personally. Brethren, brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Wow, we read this and might think, man, that was that's arrogant. That is wrong. Well, no, it's not. Actually, because you've got to understand what Paul's saying. He is not saying Paul's not saying I am sinless and perfect because Paul never believed that. He never believed that when he was unsaved. He never believed that when he was a Jew growing up. He believed the Old Testament. And the Old Testament said clearly, you are a sinner. You're born in sin. You're separated from God because of your sin. And because of your sin, you must offer sacrifices to a holy God. And that's what Paul did. Paul knew he was a sinner. He knew he was wicked to the core. And as a faithful Jew growing up, he abided by what was required of sinners in the Mosaic law. And that was offering sacrifices and praying that Yahweh would be gracious. And Paul was faithful to do that. He didn't disregard or minimize his sin He didn't minimize, marginalize the requirements of the law, which were many. So he was a conscientious Jew and all of its laws, all 600 plus laws. And many of those laws required offering sacrifices because of your sin. So in his mind, he had a clear conscience. In other words, he never violated his conscience knowingly in terms of what the Mosaic law required of a sinner is what he meant. And even when he was an unbeliever in the Sanhedrin persecuting Christians, he thought he was abiding by 
his conscience, what his conscience was prompting him to do. He thought it was a good thing in keeping with his conscience to kill Christians and shut it down. It was a false religion. It was blasphemous. It mocked Yahweh. It undermined the Old Testament. Therefore, I will kill Christians. That is a good thing. That honors my creator. It is in keeping with the law. That's what he's talking about. He never violated his conscience. And these are external matters. And that's why he could honestly say with integrity, I have lived my whole life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Well, the high priest Ananias just thought that was utterly absurd and arrogant. And so verse 2, the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside Paul to strike him in the mouth, to punch him in the mouth. And that's exactly what happened. Now, that was a violation of the Mosaic law. Under the Mosaic law, they're all Jews there, including Paul. You were... Innocent until proven guilty. Moses was clear about that. Even if you have one person who's a witness against you, that is not sufficient. You need a testimony of two or three witnesses to validate the evidence, the objective evidence, to validate what you said was true. So Paul is to be considered innocent until proven guilty. They haven't even heard any evidence yet, and the high priest is saying, punch him in the mouth. That violated the Mosaic law. That was wrong. That was sinful, what Ananias did. They did this to Jesus in John 19, you can read it, where he's on trial before the Sanhedrin, and one close by punched Jesus in the mouth. And Jesus spoke up. He didn't say a whole lot, but here he spoke up, and he said, if what I have said is wrong, then why do you strike me? That was wrong. You can't just punch me. So here's how Paul responds. Uh, so the Ananias has somebody punch him in the mouth, and then verse 3, then Paul said to the high Ananias, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. God's going to punch you in the mouth. Whoa. What was that good of Paul to do? Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? So Paul is now, he's a, he is a rabbi. He's an Old Testament scholar. And he knows the Mosaic law says you cannot do this. You can't consider somebody guilty before a trial. They are innocent until proven guilty and is totally out of order. It is wrong. It is sinful. It violates the Mosaic law to punch someone in the mouth like that. That is wrong. God smite you, you whitewashed wall. Now, Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed walls. They look pretty on the outside, but they're dead on the inside, dead men's bones, a hypocrite. You are the, so what Paul's saying, you are the ultimate hypocrite. We are on trial to pursue justice under the Mosaic law, and out of the gate you are violating the Mosaic law, accusing me of violating the Mosaic law. Utter hypocrisy. That's what Paul's saying. But he, you know, threw in a little personal ad hominem attack. You whitewashed wall. God smite you. Vengeance is mine and God's. Take that. So look at the response. The bystanders... Do you revile God's high priest? Because Paul did. Paul reviled God's high priest. And Paul said, well, I, I, I was not aware, brethren, he was the high priest. This is, this is true. I just take Paul at face value. He didn't know he was the high priest. Just there's 71 guys there. Uh, they're not probably not dressed up. He doesn't know who the high priest is. He hasn't been there in a long time. It's not the same high priest he knew 20 years ago. And also the behavior of this guy did not mimic what the high priest should be doing. No high priest would do this and treat me this way. So his answer is an honest one. Uh, I was not aware it was the high priest, but nevertheless, because it is, verse 5, it's amazing. Here Paul spontaneously, in the midst of duress and being punched in the mouth and being called on the spot, 
immediately a scripture verse comes to his memory. This shows you what an amazing rabbinical scholar of the Mosaic law Paul was. Because he recites from memory. Exodus 22. Where it says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. That verse where it says, do not revile God, nor shall you speak evil or revile a ruler of your people. And he quotes that verse and he goes, yeah, you know what, you're right. If this is the high priest, I... I need to give, be respectful. That was wrong of me to do that. See, there's a difference between Jesus and Paul, right? Jesus is on trial. They punch him in the mouth. Jesus did not respond in anger that was illegitimate. But Jesus did respond with a rebuke, letting him know you, you violated the law. Although Jesus did get kind of emotionally upset in Matthew 23 when he said out loud in public, to the face of the Pharisees, and he accused them uh, seven times, you, oh, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You hypocrites. And he just kept getting louder and louder and calling them names. That was legit because he is God in the flesh. He can do that. And his anger is perfect. His emotion is sinless. Could be that Paul, oops. He was a passionate guy, right? And he recognized, so he's, he's admitting, ooh, I was out of line. So this is the humility of Paul after the anger of Paul. So he quotes Scripture. That's right. I, I, I need to show respect. Verse 6. Then Paul's there. Okay, I'm not going to get much of a fair hearing here. I just got punched in the mouth after my first sentence. Hmm, what should I do? And I think the Spirit of God just put it on his heart. And Paul is perceptive. He's discerning. He realizes, oh, I know the makeup of the Sanhedrin. you got Sadducees. you got Pharisees. These guys hate each other. I used to be a Pharisee on the Sanhedrin, and we used to talk about the Sadducees behind their back. Who knows what he was thinking? But he perceives and realizes, you know what? we got Sadducees here, Pharisees here. There are things they don't agree on. Divide and conquer. That's what Paul's going to do. Perceiving that one of the groups was Sadducees, the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out at the top of his lungs. See, he still has that confidence in the Spirit of God, speaking with authority, crying out, uh, to the Sanhedrin. Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. There, he immediately gets an identity of a minority group in the Sanhedrin. I am a Pharisee, not just a Pharisee, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, an exemplary Pharisee, a model Pharisee, a Pharisee who stood out. And they probably were impressed. Wow, we're dealing with a fellow Pharisee here. So he's winning the Pharisees over with that statement. I am a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I am on trial. Why are you on trial? I am on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And that was one of the cardinal doctrines that the Pharisees lived for and would die for, the resurrection. So immediately he wins the Pharisees over and they were, they were influential. While at the same time, he's infuriating the Sadducees. This guy is a heretic. Verse 7, and as he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There it is. They start going out after each other. There is not order in the court. The assembly became divided. Verse 8, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Verse 9, and there occurred a great uproar, and it just blew up. So here's this Roman commander. He's at this trial of the Sanhedrin, uh, the Chiliarch. His name was Claudius Lysias. And it's like, oh man, a, a third, really? We got a third eruption of a mob? Seriously? 
probably beside himself, occurred. So there, this great uproar occurred among the Sanhedrin. Some of the scribes and the Pharisee party stood up and they began to argue heatedly. So they're, they're going towards the Pharisees and their hands are going all over the place. Their faces turning red. There's smoke coming out of their ears. Their voice is rising. We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And so they declare Paul's innocence. Verse 10. And, as great, and then it just escalated. And as the great dissension was developing, it got dangerous. It got hostile. It got totally out of order. And then that Roman soldier, okay, I got hired for one thing. Keep the order. Snuff it out if problems arrive. That's all he's thinking. So as the great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid. See, there it is. He's just driven by fear. He's afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces. Wait, oh, man, I let a Roman citizen get torn to pieces. Uh, I could lose my job and my life. I can't let this happen. Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away, take Paul from them by force and then bring Paul back into the barracks. And that's exactly what he did. So the Roman soldiers come down. They're in full garb and regalia. They've got their massive swords, and they take Paul away from these Sadducees and Pharisees who are about to just rip him to shreds. And they usher him off once again to Fort Antonia. So Paul's, you know, thrown in his cell. And you can imagine, incredibly discouraged. Wow, I tried to speak to the crowd. Well, first, yeah, and they didn't listen to me, and they got angry. And then the Roman soldier, he wants to whip me to death, and... He didn't listen to me. And then the Sanhedrin, my fellow brethren from years past and where I grew up, they, they didn't listen to me. God, what, what's going on, Lord? Well, and then the Lord ministers. We'll close with verse 10 and pick up on verse 10 and 11 next week. But on, or close with verse 11. But on the night immediately following, so within 24 hours, the Lord stood at his side. This is Jesus. Jesus came down from heaven and literally appeared to Paul. This is amazing. Paul needed special encouragement. Paul was an apostle, therefore he got personal visitations on rare occasions from Jesus himself from heaven. The Lord, Je- This is not uh, a precedent for every Christian to say, yeah, Jesus uh, is going to visit me tonight in my bedroom. Probably not. You're not an apostle. Uh, this was a, a rare and unique occasion. I am not a prophet. Jesus, I've never seen Jesus. Jesus has never literally come to me. I walk by faith, not by sight. I believe in Jesus. He is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And I'm looking forward to him coming again literally someday when he will be standing by my side, when he reigns as king of kings and lord of lords. But that night for Paul, the Lord Jesus stood by Jesus' side. What a comfort. And said, take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Little did Paul know that that was going to be as a prisoner in chains probably when he was dire. He just desired to go to Rome. So this Jesus sought to comfort Paul in his distress, and, and this worked because Paul would go another almost 10 years of ministry in chains as a prisoner, but his ministry never stopped and wrote more than half of those 13 epistles during that time. So God wasn't done with him yet, and Paul could persevere because of the encouragement from our Lord Jesus. With that, I just wanted to encourage you just entitled that title, No Justice for Paul, No Justice for All. Uh, wherever you are in life right now, you may be faced, we all are, with a situation where you don't get justice. I'm not getting justice at work from my boss, my supervisor, my employee, 
uh, the courtroom or the civil trial you're in. I'm not getting justice from family members. I'm not getting justice at school from the administrators, from the institution, from the principal, from my teacher, from the referee, from the government. Injustice reigns supreme. It's all right. We know that. The world has fallen. So we have to trust Jesus, right? He is the just one. Well, with that, we're going to go ahead and enter into communion right now. Uh, open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 11. Hopefully that's not my car. And we'll read 1 Corinthians 11. Um, if you are a Christian today, you know Jesus personally, you've believed in his gospel, you've recognized that you are a sinner, and you know that only he can forgive you by virtue of his death and resurrection, and that you're born again, Jesus welcomes you and invites you to participate in communion, the Lord's table. And communion is a visible, really a living metaphor and a reminder of what Christ has done on behalf of us as sinners. That he gave his life, he literally died on our behalf, and that's the symbol of the bread and the drink or the blood. He gave his life for us. So at the time of communion, that's what we remember. We, we remember what Christ has done on our behalf, and it's a time also to meditate in your own heart, to pray to him, to thank him, Jesus said this was an act of remembrance, verse 24. Another thing we're supposed to remember that I want to focus on here before I give you a moment to pray in your own heart, just hold on to that cup until we're all ready to partake together. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul gives the meaning of communion, this is important. Paul needed to remind the Corinthians the meaning, the theological interpretation of the act of communion because Paul knew humans are prone to do crazy, kooky things to think too superstitiously, that's a human tendency, or mystically, that is not the intent of communion. Jesus said, remember, do this in my memory. It's an act of remembrance. It is a symbol. It's symbolic. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord Jesus that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's also a proclamation. So today we are proclaiming that Jesus is alive. He's risen from the dead. He is in heaven. He reigns as Lord. He's coming again. That's what we are proclaiming by participating in this today. One thing we're also remembering, sometimes we forget our Passover, is verse 25. It says, this is the cup of the new covenant. If I were to ask you, are you a partaker and participant in the new covenant? And if you're a Christian, hopefully you would say, yes, I am. Then the hard question is the follow-up one is, well, what is the new covenant? Some people struggle with that. Well, it's right, it's right out of the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. And God promised, in the future, someday, in the latter days, I am going to give the new covenant to my people. And Jesus said, here it is. My death and resurrection is the beginning of the new covenant. And all who believe in me are partakers in the new covenant. And the promises that came with the new covenant were 
Total forgiveness of sin. Can I get an amen? Total forgiveness of sin in light of what Jesus did. Also, part of the promise of Ezekiel is he would put his spirit inside of us. Can I get another amen? The spirit of God living in you. So those are two of the biggest ones. And that I will know them personally. We can know God, have all of our sins forgiven, and his spirit will be in us forever. That is cause for celebration. I'm going to give you about just a minute now just to meditate in your own heart in light of those great realities as we have Addison play, and then we'll partake together. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.